you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning. Welcome. Good to see those of you who are here with us in person. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. Uh, we are continuing our Summer on the Mount series, and this is typically the part where I kind of give a recap um, of where we've been. I do want to take a moment uh, to honor and to celebrate uh, Philip Cross and Evan Foote, who just did a fantastic job over the past couple of weeks. So I just want to uh, give honor to whom honor is due. And, you know, one of the things, um, before I want to become a pastor, I was thinking about becoming a uh, high school English teacher. And one of the things you learn about when you... Um, or either in class, or if you're a teacher, you want to see how the kids are doing, is that you want to be able to start off and give them a pop quiz right away. So I'm going to quiz you on what you've learned over the past, no, I'm just not going to do that. But what I am going to do, um, there was a test. We're going to talk about priorities today. We're going to talk about what it is that we prioritize, what that says about us, and what that means for our lives as we look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. So as you're turning there, um, I found a Test online, which I get it, you cannot trust all tests online, but this is a a priority test that Sigmund Freud uh, put together a while ago, decades ago. I'm not purporting to support Sigmund Freud, I'm not saying we should, but I thought this was an interesting dynamic of just to check really quickly where your priorities might lie. So here's what I want you all to think about. If you want to rank them, you can. If you just want to think about it in your mind, want to see if this reflects any priorities in your life. So what would you do? Here's the quiz. Here's the test. What would you do first if you were in a situation where, one, the baby is crying, two, the clothes are hanging outside, and it's starting to rain? I don't know why they put exclamation points for everyone. makes me feel stressed. So three, the tap water is running. Four, the doorbell is ringing. Five, the phone is ringing. Now, remember... As you're considering where you would place these, remember that this was written decades ago. So the phone is ringing. We don't have caller ID, right? We don't know who's calling. Uh, Doorbell is ringing. That was actually maybe someone you knew and cared about was stopping by, not someone trying to sell you on something. So, you know, or or like an Amazon package being dropped off. So a doorbell meant something a little bit different. Um, And so when we think about these different things, when I did it, when I took it, I put... The baby is crying is the first thing. Oh, go back, please. Um, the baby was crying is the first thing that I would do. Then I think I put that the tap water is running. Then I talked about how uh, the clothes are hanging outside and it's starting to rain. Then I put the doorbell is ringing. And then I put the phone is ringing. And that's just because um, as an introvert, naturally, uh, I feel like, I don't know, Approximately 87.2% of phone calls can be handled via text. And so I'm just saying, I'm like, the phone's ringing. I'm like, I'm just going to go ahead and put that aside for now. Again, this was put together decades ago, so it's a little different. So here's what, here's what that test. If you could kind of think about where you're at, where you might prioritize, which things you might go for first. Here is what it says. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. Where if you put baby first, like that's what I'm going to do first. That shows that fi- family's a priority to you. If the clothes are first, it's money's a priority. I want to, those clothes are going to be ruined. I'm going to have to spend money in order to do that. So you bring it in. Tap water is love life. I don't know how that works. Um, (laughs) This is one of those times you just say Sigmund Freud and you just move on. And so uh, doorbell 
is friends, because again, this was back in the time where maybe a friend is visiting, maybe, maybe there's someone here. So I feel like this was lower on my list, because I'm like, I don't like answering the, phone, the door. Um, but the idea is having friends over and how that's there. And then phone, like a, a phone call that you don't know who is calling, reflects work as a priority. Oh, maybe this is a, a business meeting, maybe this is an update on what's going on, maybe this is something that I could work on. So maybe you take this and you think, yeah, that, that reflects a decent amount of my priorities. Or you think, oh, you know, maybe, maybe not so much. Again, this is just a silly task. This is not something to go home and be like, I put family third. Like, that's not the point of this. The point is just like, in an instant, all of you probably had some inclination of which one of those five things you would go to first. And whether this explanation uh, resonates or not, we recognize that even the process of knowing which direction to take is a reflection of what our priorities are. Because if all things are happening at once and all of them have exclamation points, then we need to figure out what we're doing right away. And the first thing that jumps out at us is the one that we recognize as a priority. So what we're talking about today is that we are going to uh, take or, or ask some questions that are like a pop quiz. Now, again, you don't actually have to, uh, to um, answer anything. It's not something we've already learned. But here's the thing. I was reading up on pop quizzes, and there's this, this kind of mixed bag about reviews of them. Some think, yeah, this is a great way to ascertain how much the students are understanding the curriculum so far, or the content so far. It's a great way to keep them on track. It's a great way for them to be aware that they need to know the information rather than just showing up and cruising. There's others who see the con of saying, well, you're not giving them proper time to be able to uh, plan ahead. What if someone has a bad night and they just don't sleep well or they're not able to study properly? And that happens to be the day the pop quiz is there. And if you don't give them time to prepare, then how are they ever going to succeed? And so kind of the, the consensus that I was reading online is this idea that pop quizzes, if they don't count for a lot, can be a helpful measuring tool. It's not your whole grade. But if it's something that points to, okay, how are you doing with the content so far, then it can be helpful. Here's the, here's the reason why we're looking at a pop quiz today. is the fact that we do not know, you and I do not know, when the tests in our lives will come. We don't have a schedule. We don't have a syllabus that God gives us on January 1st and says, here's what your year is going to look like. Best to prepare ahead of time. So when we just get thrown or thrust into these dynamics of what's your priority or what are you going to do when things don't make sense or how are you going to navigate when everything in your life seems to be followed with an exclamation point, where do you turn? What is the priority and what does our priorities say about our lives? And so as we enter into this time together, I hope that you will uh, humor me to take a 33-minute pop quiz together to ask questions that Jesus presents to us through the Sermon on the Mount and for us to wrestle with that together and for us to maybe be encouraged, maybe many of us to be challenged, but for all of us to recognize that though we do not know when the test will come, how can we be best prepared to face whatever test will come? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, whether they're live in person, live online, watching or listening later throughout the week. Lord, I know that each person who hears my voice, who's part of this time that we have together, is someone that you love, someone that you want to hear this message for a reason. Whether it's their very first time with us, whether they've been with us for years, whether they just weren't sure what this morning looked like, you brought them here for such a time as this. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would go before, you would speak in a way that only you can. 
that you know each person, the cries of their hearts, the, the, the struggles that they're having, the desires of what they're looking for. God, may you speak. I pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. And so as we look at our pop quiz here, we're going to have three different questions um, that we are going to ask, wrestle with, and look at um, based on this passage. And so the first question that we're all going to ask today is, what do you prize? What do you prize? What, what is most important to you? We did this in our uh, men's small group um, on Wednesday night that we're talking through. If you kind of this whole idea, if you had... Um, if, if you knew that you, like, there was a fire and you needed to grab one or two or three things, like, what would you grab? And assuming that other humans and pets in your home are safe, what things would you grab? And, you know, you might hear things that have certain sentimental value. Some things it might be very, you know, just, like, material, actual value, valuable. But a lot of it just, like, you know, what are the things that you prize? What are the things that are important to you? What are the things that you value above others? Some of us, we, we value success, we value maybe friendships, maybe we value being considered, you know, a family man or a family woman. Maybe we're people who value the, 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 the status that people look and say, oh, that person has it all together. Maybe we value being able to be people of good values. You know, like there's different things that we prize. And so what we prize, what we prize reveals our heart. If you were to say, what is it that you value, and you follow that train back, that thread back, it shows you what is important to your heart. It shows you what happens. And again, heart in this, like in, in the Bible, it does not just purely mean my sentimental feelings, right? All the way back from the Old Testament, heart was the idea of the center of the will. It was the seat of the will. It was that which would determine how I live, not just this idea of, you know, every single pop song or movie you've ever heard, like, I love you with all my heart, and then I'm going to change my mind tomorrow. And so it's, this is a much deeper idea. So what we prize reveals our heart. Let's jump into Matthew 6, verse 19. It says this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy. Some of you might have the word rust in there instead of vermin. Um, so either way, this idea of something that would destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's that reminder that where your treasure is, where what you prize most is, is that trail, is that thread that leads to what's most important to your heart. And so you think about how, how foolish would it be if you think about whatever the most, um, uh, maybe like the most expensive thing or most valuable thing in your, in your home, for example, or, or whatever, maybe, and you think, okay, let's just say you have, I don't know, a really nice expensive painting or something like that. And you look and you say, this is, this is worth thousands of dollars. The artist is well known. Um, we've had people authenticate that it is real. This is worth thousands of dollars. And could you imagine how foolish it would be to just put that outside on your porch with a sign that says free on the front? Because every night, what's going to happen? You're like, people would want to steal that. They'd be like, oh my gosh, that is, that is, a, that is an original Trafaris painting. And then you realize, oh, that's... But this idea of looking at something that's valuable for us, we want to protect it. 
We want, we want to make sure that we place that value, and part of how we do that is to show that we don't just leave it around willy-nilly. We don't just leave it out for others to come in and rob and steal. We don't just allow it for something that we do this. And so what Jesus is starting to say here is after we finished up the section we've looked at earlier where it was giving in the first four verses of Matthew 6, we talked about prayer 5 through 15, then we talked about fasting last week 16 through 18, and it's saying, okay, when you have all these acts of righteousness, you don't do it in front of others to get credit, but your reward is what is done in secret. And your reward is what happens that the Heavenly Father sees what you're doing and will reward you. Then he goes back and he says, okay, so don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't try to have the most accumulation of stuff, even if it's good stuff. Because stuff will not last for eternity. As we've seen, the, that we've heard the joke before, the idea that you do not see a, U, a hearse followed by a U-Haul attached to it. Because you can't take it with you. It all goes back, and it's not something that you can take. What are the treasures that go with us? Well, it's not that painting. It's not our, you know, our TV or our cell phones. The treasures that we built is this idea that we get to pour into people. We have relationships with God and with others that we get to be able to see what will last beyond this life. And so if we store up our good deeds, and not in the way we learned about earlier in Matthew 6, like, everybody look how good I am. I'm praying on the corners. I give so everyone sees, and I fast and configure my face. Like, oh my goodness, he's fasting. Instead of getting the earthly credit from people, it's getting a heavenly reward and recognizing that we are storing up for ourselves. We are, we are making deposits that the value of what we prize most in eternity is a far greater return than any value we put on the things of this earth. So what do you prize? Is it what other people see about you? Or is it what your father sees that you do in secret, that is, that is the acts of righteousness in secret that he wants to give you a reward for? Number two. If number one is what do you prize, number two is who do you obey? Who do you obey? Are we people who just, oh, we just obey our every whim? That, like Philippians 3, and it talks about how Paul is weeping over the people that are far from God because he says, you know, I'm moved even to tears because their God is their stomach. That whatever appetite they have, their God is their stomach and their destiny is destruction. Do you obey every whim of the world? I want to buy more, I want to eat more, I want to do more, I want to spend more. Whatever it is, are you someone that you say, I'm going to obey every whim that I feel? Are, you, are we someone who obeys what other people are thinking? That if people around us say one thing, and we know that it's contrary to the word of God, are we people who would still go and tend to be people pleasers? That would say, okay, well, I'm not going to be a, you know, I'm not going to throw a stink. Or are we people that say, okay, I love people. I also know I need to stand firm. One of the most convicting verses in my life and, and maybe in many of yours who struggle with being people-pleasing, people-pleasers, excuse me, is Galatians 1.10, when it says, am I a disciple of Christ or am I trying to please man? Because if I'm still trying to please man or seek the approval of man, then I'm not a disciple of Christ. Oh, that is convicting. Maybe some of you are like, I don't care what people think. Okay, well then maybe there's other verses that convict you, but for me... Man, that one's tough because it means that you cannot do both and. And you cannot obey 
two masters. Here's what we see in the scripture. Because what we obey, or who we obey, excuse me, reveals our commitment. If what we prize reveals our heart, if that's the thread string that shows us what is most important to us, and that's why we prize it, because it means the most in our heart, who we obey reveals our commitment. Are we fully committed to following Jesus? Or is he a nice, like, add-on when you go to a restaurant? Like, do you want to add $1.99 and get fries and a soda? And you think, yeah, I'll add that on. Or is he the one that we obey and to whom we are most committed? Hey, let's continue on, starting in verse, or continuing, excuse me, in verse 22. It'll be on the screen. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This past week, um, I had a, an eye exam just a, every couple of years. I've shared before I have keratoconus, and so they just want to make sure, um, basically that just means that instead of my, my cornea being um, rounded like most normal humans, uh, mine's more canonical, or not canonical, conical. And the idea that it just it can get progressively worse. So we need to just get it tested to make sure that it doesn't get worse. And so I went there, and they had all these different tests. Um, they do one where, you know, they do the normal, like, vision test. Uh, they do one in which they will map the topography of your eye by putting certain dye in there and like looking and they'll do things where they'll just um, have you focus on something inside while you're watching um, like an image way far and they'll cover one eye and then they just shine this really bright blue light at you. Um, and then the last one was uh, the dilation exam in which um, they put these different eye drops in, right? And it's supposed to dilate your eyes to see big. And they're so quickly okay, like keep your eyes open while we're doing that. And I'm an optophobe, like I don't like all of touching the eye thing. And then they make you go wait for 20 minutes while the dilation fully starts to, to work. And so the dilation makes your pupil, you know, go bigger so they could see better in the back of your eye to see the health of your eye. And so I'm sitting there and as I'm saying that, you know, things might start to get a little blurry for you. And so I sit across the room and it's about, they say it would be about 20 minutes. And I'm like, okay, like 20 minutes, I can look at my phone, I can read, I can play a game, whatever. But it got to the point where like I couldn't, like I couldn't read anything on my phone. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is, getting, this is getting hard to see. After 20 minutes, they bring you in, and the, the, the doctor's there, and he's got, like, um, different eye, like, he got different lights. And he's like, okay, I'm going to shine this light. Keep your eyes open. And granted, your eyes have been dilated to the point where any sensitivity, like, any amount of light is sensitive. And then he shines a super bright eye in the back. And so I'm trying to open my eyes, and he's reading off, like, you know, optic nerves look good, the... Flux capacitor needs gigawatts. I don't, I don't actually know medical terms, but it's just like this acknowledgement of he's going through and listing out, okay, things, you know, overall, things are healthy. He shows me, hey, can you see on the screen? In my mind, I'm like, no, I can't say anything. But he's like, this is, you know, this, your, your character conus has not progressed. Um, things seem to be, because it basically will stop at a plateau at a certain time in your life. And so he's like, I think that you're looking pretty good with that. Um, and so now, um, did you, did you bring sunglasses or someone, or did you have someone bring you home? Like, no, I had no idea what I was doing here today. And so they give you one of those, like, uh, glasses that can fit inside your other glasses, just those shades. And, you know, I just very slowly, carefully drove back to the office. And so I'm sitting here, and, you know, one of the things that the Lord does um, in my role when I get to preach and have that honor is I'm like, oh, um, I'll, I'll know the passage, I'll study it on Monday, and then throughout the week things will come up. And I'm sitting here on Wednesday, and I'm just, like, waiting for my eye exam, and I look over to the side, and it shows the complexity of the eye. And I'm like, I remember reading about how Darwin talked about how 
the idea of, of the human eye and the complexity of it kind of throws a wrench into just the natural, like, um, type of evolution that, that he would purport earlier in his career. And so I'm just thinking about the eye, I'm amazing. And I'm like, I'm preaching about the eye this week. I should pay attention. So I'm like, what does this test do? And what does this mean? And, and so I'm trying to learn it. So here's what happens. By the end, I realized just within those few hours, they say, hey, after a couple hours, maybe, you know, 30 minutes to 60 minutes, you should, you should be okay. And the rest of that evening, I couldn't see very clearly. And we had our men's group that night. And so I'm like, guys, I might need some of you to read because I, I can't read uh, the scripture here. Um, and like, I totally had it all memorized. No, I'm just kidding. So it's like asking people to read. So I'm like, I, I need your help. And what happens is, is you have, I just had this moment. I'm like, what if, what if my eyes never come back to how they were? The idea, to me personally, the idea of going blind or, or ha- struggling with that to that degree is just really scary. And I know people who have uh, been legally blind, and they share a little bit about that journey. And so I just remember thinking, like, the eye is the lamp of the body. And if it's healthy, and this word healthy can mean generous, it can mean single, I'll, I'll go in that second, then your body is full of light. Because again, if the heart is the thread that shows us what we prize, the eye is the gateway to what we allow into our heart. That we talk about, like if you see um, animators with Disney and and, and so many different um, animation companies, the eyes are much bigger than they normally would be. And if you've ever seen videos of like, or pictures when they show um, what like normal eyes would look like on cartoon characters, it just looks ridiculous and weird. But they're big, why? Because for animators, the best way that they could communicate clearly the emotion is through the eyes. Because if you zoom in on someone's eyes and you could see they're telling you a hard story and you, your response is like, you don't care. If they could go and you, they see your eyes crinkle like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, they could see that. So animators know that in that medium, they need to enlarge the eyes in order to expand the emotions. The eyes are the lamp of the body. If your, light, if your eyes are healthy, if they're generous, then their body will be full of light. We see here, uh, my professor at uh, Hope International, I shared this quotation a couple months ago. He talks about the image of the healthy eye as single. This is the Greek word, aplus, is as single. Conveys the sense of single focus devotion to God versus wealth. There's another idea that it could mean generous, and so it's saying a generous eye versus an evil eye or a stingy eye. But let's focus on this idea where it says, it's the idea that you are singularly focused. That if the eye is a lamp of the body, if you are singularly focused on God, then it will reveal whose voice you obey. It's not chasing after the world. It's saying, God, what do you have for me? If your eye is single, if it is healthy, if it is focused on God, then your body will be allowed to be filled with him as the light of the world in your heart. And you too, as we've learned in Matthew 5 a few weeks ago, you are the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We continue on. It says this. So no one, verse 22, no one can serve uh, Sorry, that's verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, this word money in your translations, most of your translations will say money. Some of you actually have the Greek word put in there called mammon. Does anyone here have the word mammon in their Bibles that you guys see it? 
Awesome. Okay, no worries. And so when you look at it, it's saying you, you can't have two masters. You can't serve both God and mammon. That's the most literal translation. So here's what Craig Blomberg says about that definition. He says, master, the idea of master, suggests a slave owner who required total allegiance. People could not serve two masters in the way in which people today often work two jobs. So it's kind of like saying, well, it's, low. it's like if you, like, we may contextualize it nowadays to say, well, if you have two jobs, then you can please both bosses. But it says you can't do that, so you, know, you, you need to just have one job. This is a far deeper amount of allegiance and obedience to say you cannot serve two masters. It's saying that there's no way, because if one master says you have to do something and another master says you have to do something else, there's this idea of, okay, you can't do both. And this word slave that we look at here is the word doulos, which is a bondservant. And slavery back then was very different than our, our nation's history with slavery. So it's not the same as thinking back hundreds of years ago and what that's like for us. It's recognizing that the idea would be that someone back then would be able to say, hey, I want to be a bondservant. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work for you, and I will have total obedience to what you say because I need to pay off my debt. And then once the debt is paid, the, 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 the slave, the, the doulos, the bondservant, is released. So again, it's a different dynamic than our nation's history. So I want to just be clear with that. But the idea is that you cannot serve two masters. And then he goes in this. He says, money is more literally, can you go back to the next one, please, or the previous one. Money is more literally mammon, referring to all of a person's material resources. So it's not just money, the paper dollar bills or the coins or whatever it is. It's all of your material things. We cannot serve both God who is in heaven and our treasures are in heaven with him and equally serve with the same veracity and the same level of obedience the material things of this world. It's an either or, it's not a both and. And so if it's not a both and, if it is an either or, then who or what do you obey? When God calls us to give, whether it's our time, whether it's our talent, or whether it is our treasures, do you do so willingly? Or do you hold fast because you say, well, what if, what if, are you someone who looks at material resources as the be-all, end-all of your security in this life? Or do you look and you say, God has taken care of me. He is taking care of me. He will take care of me. And so I'm going to trust in not what is unseen rather than what is seen. We continue on. The next quotation says this. The nature of discipleship is such that it allows no such divided loyalties. If one chooses to follow Jesus, the commitment and service entailed are absolute. So who do you obey? Because it is impossible to be a partially committed or part-time disciple. It is impossible to serve two masters, whether one of them be wealth or anything else when the other master is meant to be God. And this idea of or anything else is the one that we need to resonate with. Because some of you say, hey, money's not a problem for me. Some of you might say, money's not a problem for me because I don't have enough. But some of you might say, hey, money's not, that's not, that's not an issue. You know, my, I show something else. Anything other than God as an idol will ultimately fail. Anything else that we put our treasures in, the approval of other people, the status of our job, the amount of money that we have, the neighborhood in which we live, the way that people think, I mean, all of those things, 
If we invest in that, we're investing in treasures on earth that at any time can be destroyed. Whether it's the moth can destroy it, whether someone steals it, it's something that is not secure. If you want true security, it's not in the numbers in your bank account. True security is in the relationship with God the Father and that he takes care of those he loves. Doesn't mean we get all that we want, but he'll give us the daily bread that we need. So we ask, pop quiz, what do you prize? Who do you obey? And then lastly, what do you pursue most? Prize, obey, pursue, P-O-P. It's our pop quiz today. What do you pursue most? Why do we ask this? Well, if what we prize reveals our heart, if who we obey reveals our commitment, then what we pursue reveals our focus. It reveals our focus. A couple weeks ago, we were uh, visiting um, Steph's family. We all had like a family, a couple days together in the Arroyo Grande, Pismo Beach area. And I, they were at the beach and I was, um, took some time while they were at the beach to go uh, geocaching, which is a surprise to none of you who know me decently well. And so I was walking around and I had my phone out and as I was looking, I'm like, okay, like it looks like it's supposed to be right around this corner and it's going to be in this sign. So I'm like, I'm like I want to go back. I want to have time with my family. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to hurry up and try to rush. So I'm walking fast. And as I'm walking fast and I turn this corner, there was the edge of the pier. There was the sign and the pier just kind of turned this way and then there's a driveway. So as I'm turning the corner, I did not see in the shade that there was a wooden bench right around that corner. So I'm doing this and I'm looking at my phone and I turn the corner and I hit the bench. I was walking so fast that I hit the bench to the point where, like, I ended up just, like, getting uh, cuts here. Like, it was bruising. And it's, like, oozed. Like, blood is just dripping down. And I sit down on the bench. And you just so, you just, like, what is my life? Like, how do you explain, <laughs> hey, what happened? Did you, like, you know, save a kitten from a fire? No, I walked into a bench looking at my phone. Almost as heroic, but this idea of acknowledging like what we pursue reveals our focus. I was pursuing the geocache more than like looking at the way in which I was walking. And sometimes when we pursue whatever we pursue, the manner in which we walk is as important as the destination to which we seek. And so the way we walk, if what we pursue is something here on this earth, that'll change the way that we walk. And if we focus on the wrong things, if we focus on what might or might not happen, we give in to worry. If we focus on what might or might not happen, what, about, what if we don't get this? What if we do have that? What if this happens to our family? What if this happens there? What if the, the, the economy does that? What, like, we start thinking about all these different things. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if your treasure is in heaven, if God is, your, is the master to whom you are obedient and live your life, then guess what? You do not need to focus on what might or might not happen. You don't need to worry. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Some of you might think, well, yeah, if I worry enough and prepare enough, then I'll be able to withstand whatever happens. But the worrying in of itself can wear us down. 
If you notice this idea that um, we look at here, that when we see how what, what um, we recognize that our heart reveals what we value, what we prize, doesn't this show that, yes, God values his creation, but he says, you are more important to me. Aren't you more valuable than these birds? Now, we also do, um, I mentioned the men's small group, we also have a Bible app uh, plan that there's uh, several of us that are doing and, and reading and writing and contributing, and some are reading and um, we're not writing every day, but one of the ones that was brought up, um, someone mentioned how he was saying, you know, this talks about this idea of you still have, the birds still have to work, right? And so what Jesus isn't saying is to just say, hey, you know what? Don't, work, don't do anything. Like, just sit back, relax, put your feet up, and I'll provide for you. He's saying that there is work. Work is not the curse. If we go back to Genesis, God had already given Adam a work to do. The work is not the curse. It's that the fact that the work would be difficult was the curse. We're all called to work. We've all designed to have a purpose for which we are working. And so we have to work, but what we do is we work without the worry. Sometimes we work so hard because we worry. And so it's saying this, do not worry about your life. No amount of worry will actually add an hour to your life. In fact, one of the translations down here, some of you may have it in your footnotes of your Bible. It says, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? One of the other translations might say something along the lines, um, can any of you by worrying add a cubit to your height? Cubit is the tip of the finger to the elbow, so it's about 18 inches, give or take. And it's saying, if any of you by worrying, can you add 18 inches to your life? No, that's abs absurd. So, why are we trying to worry? What does that do? Um, Robert H. Mounts talks about how worry, worry is practical atheism, and it's an affront to God. And that, that, that also strikes home. Robert Mounts says worry is practical atheism, and it's an affront to God. Why? Because it shows us where our greatest pursuit is, and it shows us where our heart is, because if our heart isn't following God and we're not obeying God, therefore we are pursuing other things to help us feel secure. We are trusting in the things of this world to do something only God can do. Charles Spurgeon puts it in a, in a kinder way. He says this, the worst evils of life are those which do not exist except in our imagination. Friends, listen to this. This is gold. If we had no troubles, but real troubles we should not have a tenth part of our present sorrows. We feel a thousand deaths in fearing one. What does that mean? It means that when we worry so much, we're worrying about all the things that might or might not happen. And, and he didn't have to obviously do math for it, but he's saying 90% of the things that are the sorrows in our lives are often things that might or might not happen. If the only sorrows we had were the ones that actually existed, it would be but a tenth part. We worry, you, me, we, we worry far too much, which makes Robert Mounts' quotation all the more convicting. When I worry, am I being practically disbelieving God? When I worry... Am I affronting? Am I, am I disrespecting him? Am I offending him to that point where he's like, listen, I take care of the sparrows and you're more valuable to me. 
It'd be like trusting someone to, to watch your kids, the most prized, most valuable things to you, but saying, hey, I trust you to watch my kids, but I don't trust you to like not lose this pen that I kind of like. It's saying, hey, I can take care of so many things. Why do you question me? Why do you worry? It's because we think we have control. It's because we think we can do it on our own. It's because deep down, many of us, especially in the affluent culture, think we can be self-reliant. And especially in a culture that emphasizes self-dependence rather than God-dependence. Remember, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount was, blessed are those who are poor in heart, those who are God-dependent, not self-dependent. So because we think we are dependent, we think it's up to us to solve all of our problems. It's up to us to prepare for everything that may or may not happen. Therefore, it becomes down to us that we worry. So let me continue on from Matthew chapter 6. I'm just, it's not on the screen, so follow along or you can just listen as well. Starting again in verse 28. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Do we need to be like the, the, the um, Proverbs 31 woman? We see how she prepared and she planned. Yes, that is honored in God's word. There's a wisdom to preparation. But there can be a struggle when it moves to preparation because I think I need to be the one that's in charge. Preparation to the point where I worry and fret and am anxious about all these different things. Now, to be clear, I, I'm not dismissing when it comes to uh, what anxiety is or anxiety attacks. I'm not dismissing that worry is real. I'm just saying if we can fix our eyes on Jesus, doesn't mean that anxiety will go away, but it means that we don't need to be buried or overwhelmed by it. Because, you know, if God can take care of the birds, if God can clothe plants that are going to be burned tomorrow, and I'm more valuable than him, or than them, excuse me, logic shows that he will care for me too. He will provide for me too. So if we focus on the wrong things, we can, what may or might or might not happen, we can give in to worry. But if we focus on God and his kingdom, we have our priorities straight. Verses 33 and 34 as we close out our time together. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things. What are these things? Food, drink, clothes, all the material possessions or the material needs that you have. All of them will be given to you. Not all the things that you want, all the things that you need. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We feel that, right? Just getting through today for some of us is really difficult. We're struggling with grief. We're lost. We're feeling like we're seeking purpose, and we don't know where that is. We're crying out to God to answer a prayer that we've had for many years, and it feels like we don't know what he's doing. That's enough for us to get through. And so God gives us the daily bread because each day has enough trouble of its own. He gives us enough for today and we can trust him for tomorrow. That each day when we wake up, we seek him first. God, may, 
May everything I prize show that you have my heart. God, and whenever I have a chance to, to prove my commitment, may I obey you in a way that pleases you. God, may my pursuit for you be so evident inwardly that it shows that I don't need to worry. I don't understand what you're doing, but I'm not going to allow what I don't know change who I do. Because if God is good, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and if we can look back, like Pastor Evan mentioned last week, and maybe you're a journaler, and maybe you're not, but maybe you're somebody who could look back and say, God provided for me then. God, God did this thing for me back then. And if he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, your heavenly Father knows what you need. He knows what you need. So seek him first. Much easier said than done, but Jesus calls us to this singular focus, the singular level of obedience in following him with our heart. Verse 33 says this in the next quotation. says, verse 33 concisely states the climactic point of the entire passage. The kingdom and the kingdom alone is to be the sole what? Priority. What are your priorities? The kingdom and the kingdom alone is to be the sole priority of the disciple and that toward which the disciple devotes his or her energy. Our energy ought not to be running around and trying to make sure that we can be worrying about what we eat or what we will drink or what we will wear. It's not worrying, running around to think about money. It's not worrying around to think about, okay, man, and all my material possessions, that's what's most important to me. As if we think that when we go away in a hearse that the U-Haul is coming with us. It's saying, seek first God. Because when you seek first him and his righteousness... You're laying up treasures in heaven that will withstand the test of time, that will last for eternity, and that will move and, and create God's kingdom in such a vibrant way that people would say, they would look to you and be aware how God is working in your life. So that when bad things come, when that test comes and it's a pop quiz and you weren't ready for it because that's how life is, the best way you prepare for it is to know God's word, to hide it in your heart, to be aware of what you prize, to know whom you obey, and to pursue God first and foremost. He'll be with you in the midst of it. He'll walk you through day by day. You don't have all the answers, but you can cling to the one who does. Colossians 3, the last quote, um, let's go skip two slides and go to the last one. It says, to set our minds, since you then have been raised with Christ, Set your hearts on things above. Set your heart, set your desires, set the center of your will and your choice of how you live. May that be on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So let's go back to the slide right before this as we look at the pop quiz again. We wrestle with what do you prize? Who do you obey? What do you pursue most? And may this pop quiz help us to gauge how we're growing in the Lord at this time. May it cause us to run to him and turn to him and continue to grow in him so that we could face whatever trial, whatever test, and whatever pop quiz is coming down the line. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, whether live in person, live online, watching or listening later. Grateful for the fact that each person who hears my voice is someone that you love, you created, someone that Jesus died for, someone that the Holy Spirit wants to draw closer to the Father today. 
And Lord, I pray that as we've talked about some things that um, can be convicting, some things that are encouraging, Holy Spirit, I pray that you work in such a clear way in the lives of everyone who hears these words, that they would feel like they're not words that, that a pastor said, but they are spoken through your word in a way that meets them. So, Father, we thank you for this time we have together. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that in you, you have our hearts. And so we want to prize you most, first and foremost. We thank you that you are the only one to whom we can truly be fully obedient and live the life you've called us to live. And we thank you that when we pursue you, it doesn't mean everything will be easy. We're simple, but it means that you are with us and you will care for us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.